0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. For decades, Michael Siegel grew Near North Insurance, a small Chicago insurance agency, into the fifth largest independent insurance brokerage in the United States. The $250 million firm had 950 employees in eight U.S. cities and operated an office in London until it was destroyed by a questionable federal prosecution. Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Maurice Posley details a story of how prosecutors crossed ethical lines, violated constitutional due process, and FBI regulations in his latest book, Conviction at Any Cost, Prosecutorial Misconduct, and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel. It's published by McDonough and Green and brings Maurice Posley and Michael Siegel to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank
2: you. Thank you.
0: Maurice, uh, you write in your introduction that Michael reached out to you a number of times to ask you to write a book about what had landed him in prison, and you turned him down. What changed your mind?
1: Uh, I actually read (laughs) some of the pleadings and read portions of the transcript, and the more that I read, the more I got intrigued that this was not a uh, typical uh, what you might say, you know, Chicago financial fraud case.
0: You, you're given sole uh, writers credit on the book's cover, but can we say that this is really a collaboration?
1: Yes, really. You, you, you have to, because without, I mean, first of all, there's a fair amount of Mike's um, opinion in the book, his view of things, because it's sort of, in a way, it's it's, it's told from his point of view, although it's also grounded in the pleadings, the transcripts, the court documents, the, uh, the public record. But it's hard to tell a story like this without having the person who's at the focal point, the center
0: of it, uh, involved. Now, Michael, you were in a prison in Wisconsin when you, you began contacting Maurice. What had you been convicted for?
2: Uh, there's a, a variation of mail fraud called dishonest services, and I was convicted basically for alleged violation of Illinois Insurance Accounting Regulatory Statute. The net effect, it's a little complicated, but the net effect, at the end of the day, the court records stated at sentencing there was no loss no victims, no fraudulent intent, and no misrepresentation. Now, I'll leave it at that. I'll ask for further questions. But uh, it's very complicated uh, in the sense that um, I was originally uh, um, sort of programmed in the sense that I had some trusted employees who went to a competitor after I turned them down of being able to take over my company. And that competitor had a relationship with a very new prosecutor in town called Patrick Fitzgerald, which people in New York should recognize his name.
0: Mm-hmm. So how long was your sentence?
2: Ten years for a victimist, no loss, crime.
0: Less than Roger Stone. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maurice, you, you note that there were 200 articles about the case published across all media, which you describe as including the most vicious types of mischaracterization and political taint. Did the prosecutors use the the media to to make their case?
1: I think there's no question that they used the media um, uh, to exploit um, the case uh, and to drive public opinion. One of the things that was uh, particularly compelling um, was some of the circumstances of uh, phone calls between that were documented uh, by uh, Michael's defense team that, uh, between members of these fellows who were trying to take over his company and basically were the ones that uh, went to the FBI and, uh, and triggered this whole thing.
0: You called them the Takeover Group uh, with right. a capital T and a capital G.
1: Correct. And, and, So the takeover group had a lot of documented contacts with members of the media. Um, There there was one particularly interesting instance where a copy of a uh, a new superseding indictment was faxed um, to the takeover group, and it was clear that it originated in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and this was before it had actually become, you know, before it was in the media. Um, I mean, it was only a matter of a few hours, say, but it was clear that, that they wanted, that people wanted to make sure that contacts were made with the media. Um, a, a reporter um, actually called and said, hey, I've gotten a heads up from the U.S. Attorney's Office on uh, a, a new round of, charging document, and they pointed out to me what's what's uh, of interest to them that's new in this document. So, um, I mean, it's not unusual um, that prosecutors, either state and federal, uh, they want the media to, to report what they do. Um, it just seemed, based on the amount of phone call records in this case, that there was... Um, a lot more than what you might normally expect.
0: And Michael, did anyone from the press uh, approach you to give the other side of the story?
2: Unfortunately, um, forget about what I would say, but unfortunately, one of the key issues is after I refused to wear a wire for the government, uh, we discovered a series of proven cyber crimes from my company taking attorney client documents and this these were included in public filings at the court and we were actually exposed an FBI agent receiving one of the stolen documents but it was always a puzzle to me that the media would never pick up the court filing itself let alone what we had to say so that your answer was no they they never approached me, nor did they ever really uh, follow what they would normally do in the in the procedures of reporting in this uh in, in this alleged crime
0: now Maurice you were with the Chicago Tribune uh, you want to defend your newspaper
1: uh, well no <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. I actually was there when this was going on. I was doing other things, and so I didn't really focus on it. Um, And it kind of, if it registered, it registered as I described it before, as like here comes another case, you know, that that comes through the courts of some sort of financial fraud and and didn't didn't register. Um, I will say this, that when I um, read the transcript, of the trial and then went back and read some of the news coverage of the trial um, i felt like there was a lot of information that was not either published or didn't seem to draw the attention and by that i mean people who were being cross-examined and a lot of this case came in through the cross-examination uh, they were the cross-examination never showed up in in articles. Um I, had a, I covered the courts for a long time, and going back to even before I was at the Tribune, uh, when I was at the Chicago Sun-Times, and this was in the 70s, um, and one of the things that I realized myself over the years was that I had become very prosecution-oriented in my reporting, and I think this still happens. Um, perhaps. There's no real way to gauge it, but I think perhaps less so, but um, I had an instance where I was covering multiple trials at the same time, and I would go in and I would hear the direct examination in this one case, and then I would go off to the another case, uh, another trial. And at the end of this particular case, the defendant was acquitted, and I realized I had no clue how I was going to write this story because all I had heard was the direct examination, the prosecution's evidence. I hadn't heard any of the cross-examination. And so I got the, and admittedly, reading a transcript is a flat document. You don't see the emotion that you see when you see someone on the witness stand. But uh, I got a different feeling from the case by reading the transcript as opposed to reading the news account. Of the trial itself, and I will say this: that often um, defendants um, are not particularly, and Mike can speak to this. um, What reporters often will do is they'll call up the defense attorney, and the defense attorney will say, "Well, I'm not going to comment on this because it's 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 awaiting trial, and I'll wait and I'll try my case in the courtroom." Um, But uh, I think. Mike is definitely right about how no one really picked up at all on this. The fact that this former employee was stealing literally tens of thousands of emails and documents, many of them attorney-client privilege documents, many of them financial documents, from the company, from Mike's company, and that they were winding up in the hands of the takeover group, and some of them wound up uh, in the competitor that they went to work for, that was competing with, with Mike's company, as well as we know of you know, one that went to the FBI, and that was one where they were forced to, first they said they didn't, and then they were forced to admit it when it was shown that they had received it.
0: And none of those people have been prosecuted?
1: No. Well, not only, that's, well, that's I, not I'm a, let Murray's, when I
2: get a chance to answer, not only prosecuted, but their apprehension was protected and interfered with. So in other words, the investigation was shut down by the FBI itself. And when there was a local state's attorneys uh, attempt to apprehend the cybercrime person uh, was interfered, a call was received from the US Attorney's Office. This is our case. So, and this was a Fortune 500 company. That had on had on its servers stolen emails that had trade secrets and proposals that we had out. So no one was prosecuted. Very disappointing. One of the things that I wanted to make clear through this is I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um,
0: it, what but. what
2: happened here is is totally no, not even but, but totally unusual here that we were able to document many of the things that went down here and I think that's what convinced Reeves to take a look at this and there's always two sides of the coin here but this was really an unusual set you talk about there was 67 phone calls to a not a controversial a main columnist in the Tribune before my arrest and then the day of my arrest every one of uh, the media Um, journals where my offices were had before the US Attorney's Office made a a, a public announcement had the fact of my arrest in the various different districts where my business was.
0: Now This case has been described as a perfect storm because so many people crossed ethical lines in their pursuit uh, of a conviction Uh, and uh, it said to bolster their own ambitions. Uh, Maurice, is, is Michael's case unique in some ways because it includes so many people, a, a U.S. attorney, an FBI team, a prosecutor, a judge, and Michael's defense attorney? Or is, is the system often more corrupt than we would like to believe?
1: Well, I think that these things happen. Um, but what's what kind of makes this one unique is all the stuff that did happen, and none of it ever got— was, would have, was ever acknowledged as, as being wrong. The judge rejected uh, everything hand over fist.
0: Because the he, judge had his own agenda here. Well,
1: I mean, I, I'm not in his head, um, mm. but you know, the closest they came was at one point when the defense raised the issue. I mean, he wouldn't even give them a hearing on some of the stuff, um, let alone um, uh, actually do something about it. But at one point, when the defense raised the issue that, you know, there were tens of thousands of attorney-client-privileged documents had been um, taken in the search of, of the company's offices and there was no taint team in, in place. And this is something that Department of Justice requires that a, a, a disengaged uh, from the investigation group review these documents to make sure that, that the investigations team prosecutors and agents don't see things they're not supposed to see that are covered by the the privilege and um the judge actually granted the motion to give them back and three weeks later without saying a word why he reversed himself on a motion to reconsider filed by the prosecution and said no never mind you don't have to turn them over Um, But he he never even gave him a hearing, a pretrial hearing, to explore um, in in more detail uh, some of these things. And, you know, what you have here is that they just, they took the store, like thousands of boxes of stuff, computers, servers, everything. And so it's all sitting, you know, in the hands of the government. and. The idea of what they're going to do with it, they won't say. You have to assume the worst. And uh, the judge wouldn't even give them uh, a day in court to explore some of the uh, serious misconduct
0: claims that they were making. I'm talking on Leonard Lopez at large today on WBAI New York With Maurice Posley, uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's written Conviction at Any Cost, Prosecutorial Misconduct, and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel. And we are lucky enough to have Michael Siegel here as well. Maurice, haven't you investigated numerous cases of wrongful convictions and wrongful executions during your 25 years at the Chicago Tribune? And in 2009, you co-authored a report on prosecutorial misconduct in California. And and I had always assumed that most of the wrongful convictions were of poor people, often from minority groups, (laughs) not rich people like Michael Siegel. Uh,
1: Well, uh, one of the things that I do today is I'm a senior researcher at a uh, a three-university project called the National Registry of Exonerations. It's an online database. Now, nearly 2,600 wrongful convictions in the U.S. since 1989 and there are it's a small percentage but there are a fair number of federal cases in there some of them are are what you might expect um, that fits what you were talking about drug crimes and and the like but there's a there's some white-collar crimes in there too Um, there's there's no exception Say, um, even the best money and the best defense in the world can't stop some of these things because the way the system is set up, we rely very heavily on the integrity of prosecutors and agents uh, to do the right thing. Um, a lot of this is a hidden violation or crime, whatever you want to call it. When they Fail to disclose evidence that's favorable to the defense, it's but, called exculpatory evidence. Mm-hmm. Unless you discover it, it you don't know. Um, and I mentioned this before, where at one point they said, "No, we don't have any of these." And then they, when they got called on it, when there was some proof that arose that they did, um, they said, "Well, yeah, I guess we did have like one." <laughs> they'll admit what they have to. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and indict all prosecutors because I think there are some good ones. Majority of them are, do do the right thing um, and don't particularly get credit for it and, you know, it's sort of like you knew it was a hard job when you took it Um, and so do it right. Um, The Michael was viewed, I think, as someone who was to be bagged, that he was, that's why they confronted him and tried to get him to wear a wire. They they felt that he was uh, someone who could lead them to politicians, to business people, to people who were, you know... trapped sort of, them. I'm sorry to interrupt. To people who were
0: were prominent um it, it trapped them of what michael
2: of anything i was told when i was told i must work to, to work with them to going forward i said what does that mean they said you are a wire i said a wire with who anyone or any what we tell you to do you know everybody in this town
0: so and, and you refuse
2: absolutely refused
0: now you're you are not just a CPA you're also a lawyer Uh, yes so I would have thought that would have been an aid to you in uh, during this whole process it doesn't seem to have helped
2: no it's um, my mantra here is that uh, I am not a conspiracy theorist I don't believe the whole federal system is corrupt but at times there's a total lack of check and balance At all the different levels, starting off at the prosecutor's office, managing directors, going to various levels of the court. And at times, my book goes into very specific letters and documents filed with the Department of Justice. And there's basically a code of silence at times. I still believe in our system. I had a very unusual set of circumstances here. I don't want to go too into it. The prosecutor was fired once before and got his job back. And he continues on with the same style and the same methods of operation.
0: As we mentioned earlier, your troubles began when a group of a former trusted top level employees mm-hmm. uh, formed what uh, you've called the takeover group and conspired to take mm-hmm. control of your business. Uh, yeah. uh, they the, accused you. Of, was- go ahead.
2: There's actual documents that we're able to pull off our computers. They they labeled it takeover document. They would get $50 million and they would sell one of my companies and I get the balance. And um, it's just unfortunate. But where we perfect storm came about, they uh, ingratiated themselves with a major competitor.
0: You don't want to mention the name because you, you do sure. it is revealed in the book.
2: It's, it's in the book, Aon Corporation. And they're Fortune company, 500, yeah, Fortune 500, and they also they had a political background, and they were they were able to uh, get an introduction to, in my belief, to the new incoming U.S. Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald. Three days after Fitzgerald took office, my investigation started.
0: So, if you had cooperated. Do you think that none of this mm-hmm. would happen? I'm sure you've thought about that in the past. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, the big thing is I made a mistake by fighting them and going after the constitutional issues that my, attor- my attorneys artfully raised breach of attorney client privilege, uh, incomplete and inaccurate evidence that's not corrected. There's a whole host of things. Keeping Ta- my defense attorney. I made a mistake by doing that because, basically, I'm a practical guy. I'm not naive. I really feel under the circumstances of what I was involved with, there was no way of winning. And also, you know, 97% of the cases in this particular area are um, successful by the government. It's just too hard.
0: Now, they accuse you of fraud. Of what? Uh, they said that you, you were, had stolen $30 million to do what?
2: No. Oh, the newspaper said that, oh. and the, well, all I could say is I'm not being defensive, but my court records, and the book shows it, says that there was no loss, no victims. There was no fraudulent intent. That's important to understand that. I didn't say that. The court records said that. And there was no misrepresentation or nondisclosure, and there was no loss. So the point of the matter is I'm being—I was— being punished for
0: fighting the government. And they were successful. And, and jump in Maurice, time. you began the book with a, a meeting in early 2002 at the Weston Hotel in Chicago. Uh, Michael went at the request of a former employee, Tim Gallagher, to, to have coffee. And it was just six days after Michael had filed a lawsuit against Gallagher and the takeover group?
1: Correct. What happened? And, well, this was... <laughs> This uh, things escalated rather rapidly. Instead of, uh, as he saw Gallagher in the hotel lobby and walked toward him, uh, and he thought that perhaps Gallagher was um, uh, having second thoughts about this takeover attempt and, and perhaps wanted to have a meeting and maybe reconcile their differences, and instead he raised his he hand gave him and the finger, flipped him the bird, yeah. as two FBI agents came up and. Mike by the elbows uh, and said, we're going to go upstairs and have a little chat. And this is a tactic that has been used for years now. It
0: was a trap.
1: Well, it's it's basically, it's similar to, you know, show up at people's doorstep at nine o'clock at night and say, we've got you, we've got the goods on you, cooperate now, this is your own one and only chance, or we're going to bring down... Uh, the thunder on you, and that's essentially what was done here. And they said that's when they said you're going to have to take a felony, and you're going to have to work with us.
0: And wear the wire.
1: And when he said, "What's that mean?" Yeah. And they said, "Wear a wire." And when he said, oh, "On who?" And they said, "Anybody we tell you to." <laughs> and so, um, and that's what happens to people. Um, that is a tactic that has been used successfully by the government to make cases.
0: Well, Michael, Michael, you were about to land a lucrative deal with the Sony Corporation, so I suspect you were in very good spirits at the time. And uh, and when you refused, they told you that they had the authority to put you under arrest. Uh, On on what grounds?
2: Well, misleading, and that was the point. And I should have known better, but I'm a salesman by heart. And I first said, I don't want to go with you. You'll have to get to my lawyer. But then I anticipated that this related to this, what I believe was incomplete, incomplete and inaccurate allegations of the insurance state regulation, insurance regulation. So uh, I decided, well, I'll explain to them. I thought everything was on the square because I'm a practical street guy. So they had no authority to arrest me, but they said they did.
0: And then they brought so they you, you to uh, the, a prosecutor in the U.S. District U.S. Attorney's Chicago office, Dean Palalis, and he he pulled pulled out files that had been taken from your office. Isn't that illegal? Yes, certainly. What happened, man? And uh,
2: they were obviously, in my opinion, were taken by the takeover group. And this prosecutor was very unusual. You don't visit someone. The FBI usually does an investigation. Very rarely does a prosecutor attend these situations. And very so they had me sit there when I said I don't think I'm going to be in a position to do this. They said sit here, and uh, I didn't realize at that time. I this is sort of a little color into this thing and dramatic. So they put me in an adjoining room, and I really didn't know what was going on. And um, really, I didn't have my senses with me. It's pretty. I'm on my way to celebrate something to go to Europe with my wife uh, for our business, and I'm sitting in a room. And what they were doing is they were getting a hold of the takeover group to sign the necessary documents for an arrest. So within 45 minutes, they had the documents, and they went to a magistrate judge. Then they came back in, and they gave me one more chance to wear a wire, and I said no again. And there was two big curtains in the room, and I was curious why there's two big curtains. Outside, the curtains opened, and two FBI guys stood up and said, you're under arrest now. And they took me downtown. Wow. they kept me they kept me there to three o'clock, so I, and I wouldn't be able to call my lawyer.
0: Didn't they even inc- didn't they even cite an invented precedent for all of this?
2: Uh, no. Oh. It's very unusual. The federal government doesn't really arrest. People less than in the process of a crime. One usually goes before the grand jury. And, they have, and then they call the lawyer, bring your guy in. I had a lawyer tell me that he had substantial dope dealers, okay, that they would call up and say, bring him in next Wednesday, he's indicted.
0: This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, listener-sponsored radio at 99.5 FM.
3: We took him in the lineup and let those bright lights shine.
2: There
0: was temporal souls like me in that line. I knew I was a victim of someone's evil plans. My guests today are Maurice Posley, author of Conviction at Any Cost Prosecutorial Misconduct and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel, and also the subject of his book, Michael Siegel. And gentlemen, we will get to you in just a moment. I'm sorry we have to take a little break. Today is the last day uh, that we can do fundraising on our show during our winter fund drive here at WBAI. So. Uh, We want to just take a few minutes to tell our audience uh, what we hope they're going to do. And joining me now is Jesse Lent, my executive producer. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard.
3: It's great to be here. Yes, this is it, everyone. This is the final day. For us, anyway. For this show. Well, it's a short month. Exactly. This is the end of, or or should I say, the final Leonard Lopate at large mm-hmm. that will air during this drive. So if you are the kind of person who puts things off to the last minute, the last minute has arrived, or at least will arrive in about 23 minutes. Uh, and, and we really hope that you will... Uh, Step up and show your support by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. Or call our pledge line at 516-620-3602. Uh, This is the honor system, Leonard. We have no way of insisting that only uh, people who support the station can listen, nor would we want to, because we know that everyone's financial situation is different. But as we've said in the past, if you are able to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, uh, please consider doing so right now.
0: And keep in mind that we don't take ads on the station. We don't get foundation grants or grants from anybody. We rely solely on the support of our listeners, the people who uh, we hope uh, appreciate the kind of programming that WBAI provides. And uh, we'd also like to believe, like what we do here at Leonard Lopate at Large. So uh, please give us that call, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to. WBAI.org, that's given Then the number two, WBAI.org. And Jesse, we have uh, an incentive to people who become BAI buddies, sustaining members of the station.
3: That's right. You know, every contribution that we get for the station, especially in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, goes a long way not just to uh, allowing us to continue to bring you this show but also letting station management and network management understand that this is a priority show um now uh right now if one way you can can show your support is by becoming a BAI buddy. Now that's a sustaining member of the station, a a monthly contribution of $10 or any amount really uh, that will allow us to plan for the future and continue uh, to know that our support for the show will be here.
0: I should point out that $10 a month comes to $120 a year. We are talking about uh, a, a reasonable amount in small drips and drips. You could do $15 a month or whatever you're comfortable with, but we are not asking you to go bankrupt <laughs> to support the station. Hey. We're asking you to, to do something that we think is quite reasonable, and we hope that uh, as a lot of you will do it. And we're offering some uh, a little gift as a, a thank you.
3: This is true. So just for today, as our final uh, bonanza at the end of the drive, we're offering any of the books that we've been discussing for this drive. Um, if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, uh, G. Wayne Miller on his book Kid One, uh, Kid Number One, Alan Hassanfield and Hasbro, Robert Kreese's Ten Great Thinkers Throughout History, Jeff Madrick's Invisible Americans: The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty, uh, you know uh, Michael Patrick McDonald's All Souls. Any of the books that we've been discussing, just when you call or make that contribution online, put in the comments section uh, which book it is you want, and we will make sure you get it. If you need a refresher on some of the books, you can go to wherever you get your podcast uh, for this show or one place for that, SoundCloud.com slash Leonard Lopate and uh, that's leonard-lopate to be specific we'll show you all the different shows we've had but this is really just a way of saying thank you uh, not just to our listeners but to all the guests who have partnered with the show this month uh and and allowed us t- uh to offer their work for a contribution
0: so again the number five one six six two zero three six zero two or Online, Give to WBAI.org. And we hope that you'll consider becoming a BAI buddy, a sustaining member. But if you prefer not to but still want to help us out, uh, any amount is, uh, is purely welcome. We really appreciate any show support that you give us. You, you want to give us $10, $15? Uh, somebody just stopped by our office this morning and said, hey, I gave $100 yesterday. Well, thank you so much, all of you who have come through. And if you haven't, please help us continue doing this kind of show that we do, these one-hour in-depth interviews on subjects that don't get as much attention as they should. Uh, you, you If you want to hear about what's going on uh uh in the news well you can turn on a whole bunch of stations you'll hear the same breaking news stories again and again i'm not saying that you shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be paying attention to those stories they're really very important but there's a lot of, of more things going on in the world and we hope that uh we are Helping you uh, learn about those things.
3: I mean, the bottom line is, you couldn't do a show like this in commercial radio, right? I mean, you and I both have li- uh, most of our listeners, I'm sure, have listened to other stations. I wouldn't expect them to be uh, that chaste to only listen to WBAI. Although I have met some people who tell me it's the only station they listen to. But look, there's going to be traffic. There's going to be weather. Even at another NPR station, there's there's the certain amount of of bumpers and promos and things that you need and and uh, to to keep the show. So moving along, I believe, is the standard reason given, you know, to be able to produce a show uninterrupted like this for the full hour, without exception, full stop, uh, is really unique, Uh, not just on the New York radio landscape, but I would venture all across this country. But we can't do it without your support. You know, Leonard, you mentioned before that that a BAI buddy, it's it, you know ten dollars a month. That's a pretty convenient way to, it, to to offer a donation if you're able to do that. BAI buddies, it's also one of those win-win situations, right? Because for the station, it allows us to plan and do all the things we've been talking about. So. One last time. And, and, you can, and you can stop it at any time that you wish. Exactly. Uh, we, we're, there's no contracts. There's no <laughs> penalties. Uh, like we've been saying all along, this is the honor system. There's no trick here. We're just trying to keep this crazy experiment in community radio on the air. You know, um, I often talk about this with guests on the show about how uh, D- Pacifica actually predates NPR, and our funding model is a version of it went over to other, to national public radio, but this is really the, the original, uh, the, the OG version of public radio in the sense that, that really there are no side deals. There are no uh, corporate underwriters coming in to save us. If we're not meeting our goals, all it is is us with our microphones asking you to step up and allow us to keep bringing you this show. So if you listen we ask this last time uh of this drive to please go to give to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 thank you to everyone who's contributed uh during this drive and also to everyone who's uh, listen to a lot of fundraising. This is our only choice, uh, and we know that it sometimes gets tedious. And, and we won't be bothering you again for a while. You get a few weeks off, everybody. <laughs> I, I would love to say that it was going to be the last fund drive, but if we get enough BAI buddies, the goal is that if we can eliminate these drives, at least we can seriously reduce them. Uh, right now, uh, Leonard Lopate is one of the, the shows with the most buddies on BAI, and, uh, and though we're not competitive, we would love hmm. to be number one, and we're just about six buddies off making that happen. So if you can step up today, uh, we'd really appreciate it.
0: And uh, thank you so much, Jesse. Let's get back to my guests, Maurice Posley, uh, author of Conviction at Any Cost, Prosecutorial Misconduct, and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel, published by McDonough and Green, and Michael Siegel himself. Uh, Maurice, uh, we don't have time to get into everything uh, that happened in this case, but... This whole thing sounds a bit Kafkaesque, like the plot of a Scott Thoreau or John Grisham novel about stolen files, corporate espionage, cyber crimes, unlawful surveillance, and wild prosecutorial conduct. What what were some of the uh, bizarre and Byzantine crimes that Michael was accused of?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, when you come right down to it, what he was accused of doing— you the said way it was a that,
0: victimless crime.
1: Well, the way the the way that the insurance worked here, his company is a brokerage, and so I am, I own ABC Construction Company, and I want to bid on a a contract to build uh, public housing in the city of Chicago, and I have to have proof of insurance before I can qualify as a bidder. So I go to my mike's firm and i say this is the nature of what i'm bidding on and i'm looking for an insurance policy that will um, cover me and satisfy the requirements of the city of chicago and so he goes to um, companies and solicits bids for insurance companies and solicit bids to provide this insurance and so ultimately a person an entity is selected that's going to be the insurer. In, uh, in the sense that, anytime there's a business that provides a service that takes a pre- that takes a, a you know a, a, a cut for providing the service, and in this case, every insurance company got their premium. Every insurance customer got their insurance. So this fund, which is was the subject of, of this case it was said that he had taken $30 million out of it. And
0: then what with well, would... Pardon? And then what with the $30 million, just put it in his pocket?
1: Well, that's essentially what they argued. They didn't have to argue that he did anything particular with it. They could just say that he, you know, didn't keep, that he he took the money, um, whatever he did with it. And the, and the fact is, is that it's hard to imagine that if, everybody got their insurance and every insurance company got their premium um, how this money would have disappeared um, and that's you know one of the things that I call sleight of hand that was um, basically used to suggest that and it's like where is this money um, and the jury bought it and away he went well and yeah. Not only that, they took his company, and 1,000 people lost their jobs. Um, they dismantled the company, and it, it just sort of defies common sense and logic to me. Uh, and when you read the transcript and see the basis for what they were making, this, uh, their claims, none of it was based on generally accepted accounting pr- principles. Um, the common acronym is GAAP. It was based on sort of manipulation of some bank statements. and um, I mean, I don't want to go too far down the road on this, but the fact is is, is that nobody lost any money. I, I don't get it. Sure. And So they, they made the argument that he had deprived um, uh, he, he had deprived people of his honest services through this. I'm, I'm almost wordless, even though I've spent five years, you know, dealing with this. It, it almost leaves me speechless.
0: M- Michael, why were your attempts to expose pretrial constitutional motions in regard to cyber crimes and unlawful search and seizures unsuccessful? Um, don't we live in a system of well, I, checks and balances?
2: I, I want to be very careful how I articulate this. uh it, A very unusual landscape. The judge was a prior U.S. prosecutor, and he worked in the same office as very close to the three prosecutors that were involved in my case. And at times, these people just have to take a position to protect their prior association, and they they call it they have to protect the reputation of the office, no matter what their friends or U.S. attorneys do. In this case, it was particularly outrageous because we have a media that really took interest in my case and took interest in um, very lively interest. So the judge also had a good opportunity to, uh, shall we say, uh, get in the papers more so than the average judge would like to be in. Other people have a theory, so it was just we were just basically shot down. And my lawyer on the pre-constitutional motions was an ex-U.S. prosecutor. We had enough dumps and enough um, to to push aside his prior rela- uh, relationship of employment, and he did most articulate, basic, and he wouldn't put anything that was frivolous and screaming or anything like that. And it was just terribly disappointing.
0: Hadn't his there's, office there's been other, bugged? Hadn't he been bugged?
2: Uh, one of my attorneys, not his office, but mother, another attorney was bugged. Hmm. And they didn't want to turn over the tape recordings. and When they did, they were, in my opinion, they were deliberately uh, mixed up. But, so, now,
0: but, now th- this th- there's, sounds there's like a local... There's a whole local... culture there. Go ahead. I'm okay. sorry.
2: There's a whole culture there um, of prosecutors that move in to be judges and uh, there's a lot of interest in self-aggrandizement of various people involved. Not all the time. There's some wonderful prosecutors and wonderful judges. I almost received a per- perfect storm for a lot of the issues. know, this-, this particular ju- judge, there's something called pre-trial motions. So when we really went to trial, the government said that you should not. Uh, we should not be allowed to talk about the misconduct, cyber crimes. We should not be allowed that my company was destroyed by this recall. And the judge said fine. So we weren't even allowed to even talk about those issues at our trial.
0: Key witnesses changed their testimony after they'd been contacted by the FBI. Um, Mm -hmm. Why, this sounds like a local case, why is it the United States versus Siegel? Well,
1: it's a federal (laughs) charge. Mm -hmm. All all federal cases say that. you know, if it's a well, if it's a uh, if it's a state case in Cook County, it's um, you know Cook County versus you know mm-hmm. Joe Doe. So Leonard, all, you, I'm sorry, all federal prosecutors. I was going to say,
2: right, uh, Leonard, you put your finger on something uh, more shocking, and mm-hmm. it sort of clouded up. Is the federal government, by specific law called the McCarran-Ferguson mm-hmm. statute, it goes back several decades, says that the federal government shall preclude its regulation of insurance. And that's why every state has its own insurance department, its own insurance regulations, and they really... they, My lawyers it sort of missed it at the middle or at the end. It's a belief that the federal government had no jurisdiction to get involved with in state insurance. And that was also very dis- discerning. So my book has a lot of interest in the insurance people out there. They, hmm. they, they still scratch their heads over these decades of how the federal government manipulated some type of federal
0: crime. How, how long were you in prison and what led to your release?
2: Uh, I was in prison for eight years, wow. seven and a half, eight years. I was in a maximum prison, uh, semi maximum, till they the judge uh, had time to rule on my sentencing for 17 months, and that was quite of an experience. I'm proud to say that I can get along with all types of people. <laughs> I had no bad experiences. Um, and that particular prison was I was put in there with no because ba- they said I wasn't entitled to any bail. I was a flight risk. But they took my passport and took all my money so i don't think i was going to be a flight risk and it was very it was very difficult and it was purely an act of vindictiveness. and i have to say i was disappointed in the judge for going along with the request not to give me any bail and that took away all my ability to deal with my financial records to get positioned from my forfeiture hearing it was very very sad but i've still got a lot of energy and I'm still have my head up high. And
0: are you back in the insurance you know, business?
2: No, I, I I'm involved in a some a, a title business, and I'm involved in. Curiously enough, I'm still involved in litigation of trying to get my, some of my forfeiture money, which I believe was un, unjustly taken by the same prosecutor.
0: And you didn't tell me why. What led to your release? Oh yes.
2: My release so well, I was a little bit early, and that's another issue that was sort of interesting. In and In 2010, the Supreme Court said what I was technically charged with, what's called um, dishonest services, is unconstitutional and only apply to conduct pursued by the federal government that relates to someone who was involved with a bribe or a kickback. And none of those facts, and everyone agreed, it had nothing to do with me. So in 2010, I was uh, imprisoned from an unconstitutional crime. Well, it took a little time for my lawyers to go back to the court. And finally, (laughs) we went back to the appellate court, and the prosecutor said, well, he really didn't mean dishonest services. It really was regular mail fraud. And one thing led to another, and the, the judge took up close to nine months. Then he finally said it would release me.
0: Now, you must have been concerned about how you'd be received by everyone after your reputation had been smeared by the case and yeah. all the negative yeah. media coverage, articles that claimed that you were a thief who'd stolen mm-hmm. $30 million. But uh, you say that people welcomed you back. They recognized yeah. that an injustice had, had occurred here?
2: Absolutely which I'm very thankful for, fortunate for. Uh, people come up to me occasionally on the street, and they hug me. Some people don't even know me, and they say, we don't understand what happened. Some people think that, okay, whatever you did doesn't deserve to what happened to you, and I say I'm thankful. I get cheerful. I say, read my book when it comes out. I hope mm-hmm. you get a better explanation.
0: Maurice can reforms- go on. Can reform? We have very little time, but can forms, reforms be put in place that might prevent something like this from happening in the future?
1: Well, part of the problem with prosecutorial misconduct in general um, is that if the if the first gatekeeper, the prosecutors themselves, um, are unethical, it's difficult to stop. Then we have to. The next step is relying upon the court, and if the court matadors it through um as what happened here um the gatekeeper of the first and second instance is is the judge and then the appellate courts um put their stamp of approval on it and then as mike took it even further and made had some incredible packages put together to send to the justice department office of professional responsibility which is supposed to investigate this sort of thing and and the answer was, you don't, I, we don't even know if they even looked at it
0: because— the- I have so- to leave it there. I'm sorry. I've run out of time. Okay. Thank uh, you for the opportunity. My great thanks to both of you, uh, Michael Siegel and Maurice Posley, author of Conviction at Any Cost, Prosecutorial Misconduct and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel, published by McDonough and Green. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer Reggie Johnson and to our executive producer Jesse Lent for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out London Low Lowpaid at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Also, our website, LeonardLowpaidatLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope you'll join us on Monday when Jeremy, when, when Jeremy Salt will discuss his book, The Last Ottoman Wars, The Human Cost, 1877 to 1923. Still a troubled area. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. And for the last time during this uh, winter fun drive... And from us anyway, if you haven't stepped up to support Leonard Lopate at large and the station that brings it to you every weekday, please consider becoming a member of WBAI. You can do that by we'd like uh, you to become a BAI buddy, or go to WBAI. Well, give to WBAI.org. That's given the number two WBAI, or give us a call at five one six six two zero three six zero two, and. Thank you if you do, and that well, thank you for listening under any circumstances.